What can you learn by the way a person clicks a mouse? Well, it turns out plenty. And what does that have to do with helping those who are vulnerable financially? Let's just say that where those two phenomena connect, the future is coming. In fact, it's already here. Today on the podcast, Dave and Darm will talk to Max Wiggins, the insight and innovation lead at Verge, and Adrian Webb, chairman of the Lab Marketing Group. From the studios of Contrarian, new media in the UK and US, comes the Dave and Darm Demystify Show. Dave and Darm demystify show, making sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and chat it through to make it clearer and easier to understand. And now, here are your hosts, Dave Wallace and Darm Mystery. Demystify. Hi there. So welcome to the show. Two very interesting guests going to talk about what they're doing with vulnerable people and financial services. These people are Max and A. So Max, A, do you want to introduce yourselves and then let's talk about what you're up to? Hi guys, Max Wiggins here. So I'm the Insight and Innovation Lead at Verge, an agency within Lab Group. My kind of role there is focused on solving commercial problems in digital environments. And the way I go about that is by using my academic experience, which isn't in marketing or business, it's in cognitive neuroscience and psychology. Right. So a lot of what my role consists of is using research from those areas of sort of the cognitive sciences to try and understand how to improve user experiences, how to solve problems from a slightly different angle, which typically tend to be in the digital domain. So you're bringing yeah. true science to user experience. So going, to. The, going beyond the psychology moniker to someone who's actually kind of been there, done that, sort of studied it in detail. That's the aim. Is this quite common now that to have someone like with your skill set in an agency? It's a good question. I think it's getting more and more common. Obviously, there's a big push with kind of data scientists at yeah. the moment. However, I think having almost a psychologist, someone with a quite in-depth knowledge of human behavior, that's going to be more and more desired to actually understand the data and the reasoning behind why people are doing the things they're doing or why the data is showing what it's showing. Cool. And Aid, what about you? So I'm chairman of Lab, and I came in to help the agency do more of what Max is now doing, which is the sort of big problems, the tackling societal problems with a bit of innovation. I've got a background of sort of financial services going back 30 years, mostly in sort of chief marketing type roles and communications. But my academic background, as with Max, is in psychology. And I've just always been fascinated at how you can use an understanding of the human mind to pick apart UX and UI type problems and repackage them to give better solutions. Well, that's very interesting. And to Darmish's point, I mean, observationally, I'd say a lot of agencies talk about psychology, but actually very few of them have proper psychologists on board and very few of them have a psychologist as a chairman as well. So it's kind of an interesting start point. So 
I met you last year and you were talking about some work that you were kind of looking at to do with trying to identify vulnerable people by on-screen behaviours. And, you know, I was sort of immediately fascinated. So I just wondered, could you kind of give me or give us all a bit more background on what you're doing and what's going on, sort of the future for what you're doing as well? Shall I give the overview, Max? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So just to give you a little bit of an apocryphal tale, this all started at a bar in Soho about two years ago. As so many we were, things do, but <laughs> so many things do. I think I think we were drinking some Belgian beer and we started talking about vulnerability and character traits. And one of the conclusions we came to is that humans, through a process of you know evolutionary psychology, are very, very good at spotting traits very quickly in other humans. So a vulnerable customer who enters a human-to-human environment like a bank or you know a broker's office, that very quickly subtle cues would inform one person that this person might be vulnerable and then they would start probing more deeply. And the problem was in sort of digital environments, a lot of that screening, that human-to-human screening disappears. And the optimization of those digital environments means that sort of companies optimize to the center of the bell curve when the vulnerable will be on the fringes of the bell curve and sometimes might be regarded as collateral damage. Back in Cafe Bohem, we said, well, the thing is, if you're a person who is vulnerable and presents as vulnerable to another human being, there must be what we call kinetic residue. There must be things in your behavior, your movement, that give a clue to that vulnerability. And we were wondering whether any of those would be left when somebody is filling in forms digitally. And we started working through what those might be. Might they be more deletions, more agitation, less ordered behavior, less methodological and conscientious sort of filling in of forms, more flipping about backwards and forwards. And off the back of this, we started reading back through the literature and finding that there's actually quite a large body of work that suggests this is true in all sorts of areas. So from that point onwards, we said, right, we've got something here. And Max really sort of set about building up the sort of literature review, the psychology, the neuroscience behind it. And we then started getting interest from academic parties. And a lot of people said, go for grants, go for grants for these things. We put in for an Innovate UK grant. And lo and behold, we won that grant. And we also got a very, very high score for that because it's an environment, as you well know, that is awash with regulation. And a lot of that regulatory pressure is coming down how companies handle vulnerable customers. Are they going to allow them to just be collateral damage or are they going to take them seriously? The regulator wants them to take them seriously, but they don't have many ways of doing that in digital spaces. So really sort of Max's brief for the last 18 months has been to build up, (laughs) build up the weight of, of sort of academic rigor that goes into what we are building. We've since won other grants as well. So it's been an exciting journey. I think it's an incredibly important area. I guess if I was a listener, I'd be wondering, well, what does this kind of mean from a practical point of view? It's a very good point, and I'm going to let Max speak in a moment. But the simple view we had was that if you could provide companies with a very light-touch way of making early decisions in their loan applications as to what the person on the other end of the keyboard might be like, 
that actually they could start to bifurcate and trifurcate those journeys to make them more appropriate to a different kind of audience. So maybe that the choice architecture changes if early on in the journey you're picking up signals that says this person has a potential vulnerability. Now, the good thing is you don't need for that to be absolutely correct. False positives don't matter because it doesn't actually change the outcome. It just means that the choice architecture it may take a little longer. There may be a little more friction. It may well be that there's more information given. There's more signposting. There's more guidance. It doesn't really matter. It's not going to change the product at the end of it. It's the appropriate journey to that product to make sure that vulnerable people can be included. It's the big worry, and it's a worry that goes across society, is that banks will just say, well, let's just snip off the edges because the middle is so profitable that we can afford to and just pick up the damages if somebody sues us. But actually, that's the reverse of the kind of inclusion that we're going to need because the proportion of people in Britain who are vulnerable is rising every day, particularly with COVID, economic situation, everything. So it's got to be taken seriously. It's actually quite a big number, isn't it? What the FCA thinks, like over 50% almost, right? 2017, it was yeah. around 50% because the vulnerability, the drivers which they define as sort of physical health, mental health, significant life events. So if you recent bereavement or loss of job, resilience and then capability as well. So sort of learning difficulties. And I think with all of those areas, any method which you can help understand if they fall into that category and then cater their user experience very slightly to better serve them. It's a method of protection where everyone wins. You're including people, you're not excluding people. And that's been our goal from the offset, really. I really like the notion of changing the UX depending on what you know about somebody. And I think, I mean, it's almost counterintuitive what's just been said is you actually might put some more obstacles in people's way, might slow them down as part of the process they're going through in order to kind of give them a bit more time to actually understand what they're kind of signing up for. Max, you and I had a brief exchange on LinkedIn about buy now, pay later, which seems to be going in completely the opposite direction Mm. by providing these very kind of cognitively slippery experiences where you can just go from reaching a buy button and kind of finding yourself in debt within seconds. I do find that fascinating. So have you started exploring how you could do that? Or are you still at the stage where you're kind of starting to define how you would understand people's psychology as they kind of come into the process? Well, it's a beautiful, holistic package, Dave. You'll be pleased to hear. (laughs) Uh, Because really, we knew that there's no point in having something that can detect something unless you can make the sort of appropriate interventions off the back of it. And it may well be that early in the journey that we have here, that some financial services providers literally have a rag status. This person is showing clear signs of vulnerability. Let's slow down the journey. Let's put more information within the journey. Let's do better signposting better guidance. They might even start moving people across channels. They might even say, actually, now's the time to speak to this person. You know, leave your number here. We'll give you a call back. Because ultimately, most companies are trying to get rid of the human to human because it's very costly. But regulatory fines and regulatory action are even more costly. So there is a good good argument for channel switching in some cases. But, but to give you an example, you know, somebody within an insurance journey, and I know from 30 years in the insurance world, Some people arrive on a page and within half a second, 
they're on the next page. They've literally read nothing. They're just in transactional mode. They've got to get a policy before it runs out tonight. Other people hover on that page. They click little information roundels. They open up sidebars to read stuff. They're on there for sort of 10, 15 seconds reading stuff. Now, the ideal bifurcation of that journey is that on the next page, the highly transactional person gets a similarly, you know, lean page, a lean transactional page. But the other person who's paused on that first page and interacted with it to find out more is given a much richer, fuller page with lots of guidance and information about their excesses and all sorts of things. And it's very logical, if you think about it, to change the journey to fit the person who's on the other end. Not to try and optimise it so it fits everybody, but in fact ends up missing all those people on the fringes of the bell curve. How do you think banks will kind of respond to stuff like this? I mean, it sounds like this is a must-have for any bank, right? I mean, it should be the case that they're there to protect customers. What feedback have you had? Have you spoken to banks already? Is anyone kind of leading the way here? In our experience so far, Max and I, we've had an incredibly positive experience in dealing with Nationwide. They're a mutual, and as such, they take their obligations towards all of their customers very, very seriously. It's not just driven by profitability, it's driven by inclusion. And in fact, having a sort of partner like that in this project has been a huge, huge help to us. I think they take their obligations seriously also as a business model, that actually you can draw in more people within society and serve them better with that business model. I think the problem comes for those at the top who have a pure eye on the bottom line thinking, how can we get the most profit? They're going to literally run headlong into the regulator on this because the regulator knows. You know, the regulator is there partly to fulfil policy. And policy at the moment is towards protecting vulnerable customers because who picks up the bill when things go wrong? Ultimately, society picks up the bill. The state picks up the tab. And the regulator is going to, in many ways, particularly the situation we're in at the moment, protect the state and to put that obligation in the hands of those who have deep pockets, which is the banks. So they're going to have to take it seriously. But they're not quite sure how to do it in digital environments. And that's where our mission is to help them. What about the digital banks then? Are they kind of on board with this already? Are they leading the way in any way or anyone doing well there? A Monzo or a Starling? I'll jump in on that one. I was on a recent webinar, I can't remember who, but Nationwide and Monzo and a few other digital banks were on there. And this is the talk at the moment about protecting vulnerable customers. And I feel that Monzo, they've got a lot of good kudos for their sort of gambling transaction bans, the first to lead the way in that direction. And I think it's going to be an area where they want to expand. Going back slightly, it partially depends on what kind of products these banks are offering. Some of our recent qualitative research we've done already, we're finding that for a credit application, the type of kinetic behaviours we're seeing are very erratic, quite rushed, quite impulsive. The bank's main offerings are going to shape what kind of digital residues we look for and how easy it is to track and how easy it is to push vulnerable customers in the right direction to serve their needs. Turning back, Max, in terms of understanding what's out there from an academic point of view. What are some of the things that you've discovered other people have kind of looked at? Yeah, so it was really interesting because at the start we realised there's pockets of research on intra-browser behaviour and psychology. However, it's extremely small and it focuses on sort of one area. So we've noticed this study quite early on 
can't remember from which university, but it was looking at kind of reluctance and deceit and whether people were lying throughout a user journey or didn't want to click something, reluctant. And one of the metrics we found, it's called area under curve. So when you make the trajectory to click with your mouse, to click a button, unconsciously, if you don't want to click it or you're being deceitful, you make a wider trajectory. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and this was just one of these. When we saw this before, it's going to be incredibly difficult to track, but it shows something bigger. It shows the fact that we unconsciously, our sort of vulnerabilities and psychological states are manifesting themselves through the keyboard and mouse. And that was the biggest question from day one. Is this even possible? And I think me and Abe realized that if you have a vulnerability, it has to manifest itself in some way. And that's where we started digging a bit further. And we found some studies related to kind of erratic behavior. And we sort of reverse engineered a model. So we looked at the five-factor model of personality. And with that, we specifically honed in on conscientiousness and neuroticism. Conscientiousness to do with sort of how ordered or planned someone is going through the journey neuroticism being how kind of emotionally reactive they are and all of these traits are fine it's when they sort of start being weighted into very high or very low and from that we were able to work backwards and look through the literature are there studies related to clicking behavior and what we coined frustration clicking are there studies related to scrolling and there are however there's no end-to-end -end test looking at all of them in a live environment and I think that's kind of came on to our next phase of research for this project, which is the quantitative study where we're going to be creating a methodology which people can go through and participate on about 20 minutes. We're going to track all of these metrics and then working with machine learning experts from City University, they're going to strip out, you know, what's the, the most predictive combination of metrics which might suggest someone is vulnerable. It's interesting, you're kind of using machine learning to understand people's behaviour. And then I presume, going back to what you said, Aid, about sort of the end-to-end -end solution, you're then going to need machine learning to start defining what the experience should be from a user based on what you find about them as part of an application journey, for instance. Is that right? The sequence of events here is going to be a giant feedback loop. Because it may well be that there's relatively simple changes to choice architecture that you can make that are appropriate for this. So it may well be that you have three types of journeys. You have the super fast transactional journey, the person who knows exactly what they're doing and showing no signs of vulnerability, just urgency. You then have a sort of middle ground. And then you have quite a sort of high friction, high signposting, high guidance journey that's in there as well, with much simplified, you know, more pages with simpler messages on there and more availability of information. And what we'll do is we'll be able to see in the sort of long term how effective these different models are being. It may well be that we need five different levels of choice architecture. It may well be that high interest loans need 10. Right. It may well be that insurance businesses just need two. But each one will be appropriate for that industry. But it should be one that keeps them out of that regulatory scrutiny and sort of potential fine area that can be a company killer in the financial space. Companies are now talking about being more purposeful in terms of what they do as well. So this sounds like a 
great opportunity to go beyond the hyperbole and do actually something practical as well. One point of economic interest is that for Britain, what is sort of middle England as far as financial services is concerned, is that that sort of bell curve has flattened out massively, particularly with economic pressures and particularly with the impact on everybody's mental health of the last two years. And with that curve flattening out, if you're just going for the centre, you're actually missing a huge opportunity. If you can serve the vulnerable people of Britain and other countries well, you actually can become more profitable and become a better company. So there is a win-win in there. It's not just we've got to do this because we've got to look after those vulnerable people because the regulator will slap our wrist. There's an economic and there's a business opportunity to be had. This is definitely something that should be a higher priority for all banks. You know, I'm going to ask the difficult question, you know, the how long is a piece of string one, which is, you know, roughly when do you think we might see some of your work actually being used by banks? I'm going to ask the brains. <laughs> no commitment here. Well, it partially depends on how we find with the data, you know. If we're finding very clear metrics that pop out that are associated with vulnerability, it can be a faster process. However, it might take multiple iterations where we learn things. And I think a big thing personally, when you tell people this about our idea of working on this, oh, it's great, you can tag people, you can tag people, you can identify people. It's like there's two parts to this. The tagging is one half, and then it's the catering to their needs properly. And I think just as much time needs to be invested in what are the right ways to you know, change the architecture or change the signposting to address these people. Because, you know, if... Series four isn't put into that side, that could be really bad and almost make it even worse. I think in a utopian world, towards the end of next year, we'd like to have something that we're confident with and that we want to take to market. Again, it's really interesting. You're taking a very robust approach to this. I really admire your honesty in terms of if you don't find something, then you put this to bed. But I just think it could have a massive impact. You know, the banks and the other financial services companies are all going to have to recognise that the way they do things at the moment is very static. Mm. And, yeah. you know, across mm. the board, in terms of everything that they do, they need to be a lot more segment aware or personalisation aware in terms of what they offer people. And I think this is a great, great way of actually bringing that to life. So really like to thank you for kind of joining us. We're going to keep an eye on what's going on. And yeah. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a great pleasure and thanks for being interested. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Dan Demystify. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault on SoundCloud. Be sure to connect with Dave Wallace and Darmish Mystery on LinkedIn. And until next time, ciao and have a marvellous week. The Dave and Darm Demystify Show is a production of Contrarian New Media, London, Chicago and Austin, Texas.